0: We come to Joshua, we've been here now for uh, over a month looking at Joshua chapter one and two. Joshua is a book of history, okay, if, if, if you're familiar with the old song that, uh, that, that would go through the books of the Bible, Joshua is there in the, book, the books of history, it's a historical book. It makes for great children's Sunday school stories with pictures and all sorts of things. And certainly we need to know the story. But the Bible is more than a historical book. I hope we realize that. Yes, this is a book of history, but it's primarily, it's a spiritual book about God. It's about what He's doing and how, how God relates to His creation. And it happens to contain true historical stories like the story we have in Joshua 3. So Joshua 3, yes, it's a it's a a book, a story of history, but it is first and primarily a spiritual story. And it's a spiritual story for us today. But in order to understand how this story meets us today, we need to, we need to understand the story. We need to understand its history, the historical context. We need to understand also the biblical context. So, so when we think about the Bible, the Bible is telling one big gospel story which means that everything we read in the Bible is connecting to the big story that's being told. It's the unfolding story of the good news of Jesus Christ. So when we come to a portion of Scripture, it's not just what are the historical context and details, but what is the biblical context? Where does it fit in the big story that God is conveying to us in the Word? So let me just... Walk through the story for us. It's already been read, but at the beginning of Joshua chapter 3, Joshua and his men come to the Jordan River and they set up camp. And in verse 2, it says, at the end of three days, okay? And I want to stop here just for a moment because some of you that maybe have been reading through these texts or you're thinking through the, man, I've heard this three days thing before, and there is some debate that exist on how to order all of these events from Joshua 1 to 3. Because there are multiple three-day periods mentioned in these chapters. In chapter 1 and verse 11, Joshua tells the people that they will enter the land in three days. In chapter 2 and verse 22, we're told that the spies are hiding in the hills for three days. Now we read that three days have ended while Israel is camping along the Jordan. And so some have used this, what seems like maybe discrepancies or disagreements with these three-day periods to say, hey, this is why the Bible is false. This is why the Bible can't really be relied on because you have all these disagreements. We can't even get the three days right. But there are at least two explanations, I think, for what we're reading. One... Joshua calls the people to follow him in chapter 1. We looked at that. And within three days, they gather their provisions, and and they're at the edge of the Jordan. Okay. Meanwhile, while while they're making their way to the Jordan, Joshua has sent out spies at the very same time that he calls the people to follow him. Now, it would have taken those spies about a day to get to Jericho, but then we're told that they hide out for three days because the people of Jericho are, are, are... Catching on to them as spies. So they hide out for three days in the hills, and then it would have taken them another day to get back to the camp. So there's a slight delay, but only because of this unexpected need to hide. That's one explanation. Another explanation is that Joshua 2 happens between Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 9 and Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 10. So in chapters 1 through. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, Joshua is called by God, and immediately he sends out spies. And once those spies return, he rises early in the morning, what we read in chapter 3 and verse number 1, and he commands the officers of the people to tell those in the camp that they will be crossing over the Jordan in three days. Chapter 1, verse 10. So, whatever... the three-day, In other words, the three-day periods are all re- referring to the same three-day periods. And you can think about those explanations on your own, but why do I bring something like that up? Because I want you to know that the Bible does not contradict itself. It is true. But yet people seek to use some of these things to discredit the Bible, but yet the Bible is true. And there are explanations, reasonable explanations, for how these things might be laid out. Uh, And and that being, one being, maybe it's not just completely chronological, maybe chapter 3 does fit in here in the middle of chapter 1. Regardless, Joshua tells the people that in three days they will see the ark of the covenant of the Lord carried by the priest, and when they see it, they are to follow it after they consecrate themselves. We're going to look at all these details, but it's going to be over the next couple weeks. The Lord is going to exalt Joshua, and the people will know that Joshua is now God's chosen leader to lead his people into the promised land. And so the priest will carry the ark to the river Jordan, and they will step into the water, and the waters of the river will, will part, and they will cross over on dry ground. And that's exactly what happens. That's the story as it unfolds. But how does that story relate to us? Well, as we think about this story in relationship to the big story, the big gospel story that is unfolding, we understand that this is primarily a story about God. In fact, it's... It's it's his plan that is unfolding. It's a story about who he is and what he is doing. Do you know whose name appears more times in this passage than anyone else? Almost twice as much as Joshua. It's God's. Eleven times. To Joshua's six. And so what we need to take away from this story the most is what we see about God. Because we are on a very similar journey to the Israelites. We're just in different parts of the gospel story. But as we'll see, those stories aren't so different. And when we understand more of who God is, it will cause us to know Him better, to love Him deeper, to praise Him more excitedly, to serve Him faithfully, and to trust Him confidently. And trust is a funny thing. It takes a long time to earn trust, but just a moment to lose trust. And yet what we see in God's actions and His character, it proves that we can trust Him. I say all that to lead us up to, if I had to summarize chapter 3 in one sentence, here's how I would do it. The Lord of all the earth shows grace to His people and will faithfully lead them to the land He has promised. The God of all the earth shows grace to his people and will faithfully lead them to the land he has promised. And this morning, I want to break this down into five points. Again, we're going to, we're only going to, we're going to cover two of them this morning, and we'll cover three next week. Five, five truths about God that will increase your trust in him. So if you're taking notes That's what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. Five truths about God that will increase your trust in him. Number one, God is sovereign. We just sang about this. Sovereign over all. Which even the song says at the end, so I can trust him, I will trust him. Notice verses 9 through 11. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. God is sovereign. Now, what does sovereign mean? It means supreme, to be in control of all things. It has the idea of being independent. He needs nothing or no one for his existence. Humans are not sovereign. We are dependent on God. We are dependent on each other. We're created that way. We're created to be dependent, yet oftentimes we like to think that we're independent, But you don't sustain your life. We're not in control of our lives, let alone anything else that happens in this world. God, however, is sovereign, in control of all. And Joshua then says in verse number nine, he says to the people, and I I prayed this at the beginning, but notice the words, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Understood in this command is that God is worthy to be listened to. He's, the Creator is speaking and it demands our listening. It's not just Joshua's words. It's the words of the Lord your God. Now understand that Joshua isn't saying to listen like some guys. Right there, listen to their wives. You know you know how it goes. Sorry guys, I'm going to use you as a bad example here. Our wife is talking while you're watching something or you're doing something else. And after a while, she'll say something like, "You're not even listening to me." And we say, "Yes, I am. Listening to you?" Ladies, I'm going to give you a little insight what we mean when we say yes, we're listening to you, is that we hear sounds coming from your direction. <laughs> but we're not really listening. We, we can't multitask, okay? The word for listen here that we're reading, it means to hear and to obey. The word of God was coming to them to be heard and to be acted on. So listening without action is actually disobedience. Kids, remember this. When your mom tells you to clean your room and you say, yeah, mom, I heard you, while you continue to sit on your tablet and play your game. When the sovereign God speaks, we are to listen, to hear, and to obey You say, well, what makes Him sovereign? Just the fact that you say He's sovereign? Well, notice verse number 10. Verse number 10 describes God as the living God. Not just just a living God in that moment, but the God who lives, who has always lived, who always will live. Life flows from Him. He's the source of life, independent of anyone and anything else else. He's not like the idols that have mouths but can't speak, and ears but can't hear, and hands but can't act and do anything. He is alive, and He has always been. He is eternal. And it says, the living God will not fail to drive out the inhabitants Of the land. You see, God's plan is to take the land from the people groups listed in verse number 10 and to give the land to the people of Israel. You see these two words in the English, drive out. And we think, well, what does it mean to drive out? It kind of gives the idea of like shooing a fly away. Okay, Get, get out of here. And to God, that's what it would be like. Get out of here. Side note, shoe fly pie is... Vastly underrated. Don't know why I think of that. But the people of Israel aren't just going to push the people out and kind of throw their luggage out behind them. Here you go, find a new land. No, what what it's talking about here when it says to drive out, these people groups are going to be killed. Every last one of them. So God is bringing his people into a land that he has promised them. Great news. But, but on the flip side of that blessing is that, the, that these people groups are going to be destroyed completely if Israel obeys. That's a hard thing to wrap our mind around. But I think that's why we read in verse number 11 when it describes the Lord, it says, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth we're reminded that it's all his every acre of land on this globe is his you might think you own your property but you're just renting it from the lord it's all his and he has the right to do with it as he pleases, and his judgment is always good. Psalm 9, verse number 8, he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. You see the, the root word there, right. His judgment is right. And this alone should be enough to convince us that what will happen to these people groups is Right. But I suspect that we might have some lingering doubts, some lingering questions. In fact, there might be some here this morning that say, you know what, this is why I can't believe in a God who would do something like that to innocent people. And this morning, if you're thinking that, um, let me say, I hear that objection, I hear it. But can I respond? Because that, that, a, a thought like that, that way of thinking, only makes sense if you're the one that's setting the rules. But God is the Lord of all the earth. He sets the rules. And he sets the rules, and every one of us has broken them. We have broken them in our actions, in our thoughts, in our attitudes. It's what the Bible calls sins, and we're all sinners. We are guilty, all of us, of breaking God's law. So then we ask, are these innocent people that God is unfairly bringing into judgment or is he rightly judging them for their sin? And understand the land of Canaan where these people groups were living before Israel enters in was full of violence, full of injustice, sexual perversion, even child sacrifice. These were no innocent people. And God is going to drive them out of the land. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 9, and verse number 5, this is the second half of the verse. We'll look at the first half in a little bit. But here's what it says. The Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of what? Their wickedness. Judgment came on these nations because of their rebellion against God. These were no innocent people because there are no innocent people. And God is right to do anything and everything that he would allow to happen. All that he does is right, if for no other reason, because he is the Lord of all the earth. But we know that God isn't just doing random things. Like, oh, let me, let me try this, let me try that. No, he is good and he's working his plan for our good. We can trust Him in every situation, that He's the one in control, that He will act rightly. So when He speaks today, which He does through His Word, do you listen? Do, Do you hear what He says and then do you obey it? Joshua's invitation to us is to come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. That's for you today. And so friend, if you come here today with no intention of listening to the Word of the Lord your God, then you do not worship Him. You're worshiping something, but to worship God is foundationally to submit to Him as the Sovereign One. The living God who will without fail drive out the enemy. Do You listen to Him. You obey Him. See, this morning, no. As we think about Him driving out the enemy, the enemy isn't a different ethnic group. Think about Rahab in chapter 2 that Pastor Adam just talked about. A Gentile prostitute. The most unlikely of Israel's friends. Yet because of her faith, she was part of the same spiritual family as God's people. So don't buy. Don't buy into the cultural lies that tell us that our enemies are flesh and blood. That are a different ethnicity, a different political party, a different social or economic class. We fight a spiritual battle. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his spiritual forces. And so the encouragement to us, much like the people of Israel, is do not fear Because God will without fail drive out the enemy. He destroys the enemy. The serpent doesn't win. God is sovereign and He has already won the battle. And right now, think about this, dear Christian, right now in this moment He is advancing His kingdom against the enemy who will be driven out once for all. Sometimes we look at it the other way around and we think it's, It's the forces of darkness that are advancing. But what is the indication from Jesus in Matthew The gates of hell will not prevail against the church? The perspective is God's kingdom is advancing and he is working in this very moment to drive out the enemy. This is his plan and he will accomplish the work. He is the sovereign God. Number two, not only is God sovereign But he is gracious. God's fingerprints of grace are all over this story. Think about what's happening. The entire story is like a reset for Israel. It's a second chance. It's a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant. Now in Exodus chapter 19 through Exodus chapter 24, it outlines much of the covenant that God makes with the people through, through their leader Moses. A covenant is a, is a coming together, it's a binding around uh, certain agreements. God gives Moses the law on Mount Sinai. And what what does God say to the people? If you obey, you will gain the land and you'll remain in it. But if you disobey, God will drive you out from the land just like he has driven out the peoples before. And what we know is that Israel disobeys and they rebel. In fact, even before they get into the land. They're in the wilderness and they don't even obey. They haven't even made it to the land yet. They've already broken their side of the... Agreements. They've been unfaithful to the covenant. So really, God owes them nothing. They are just as guilty as the people of the land. But notice Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse number 5, the beginning. Here's the beginning part of that verse. It is not because you are so good or have such integrity that you are about to occupy the land. There was nothing that these people could do. It was not because that they have earned anything, but only because of God's grace that they were going to go into this land. Now if you're taking the story of the first Exodus under Moses, if some of you know those details, and you overlay it with Joshua chapter 1 through 3, okay, if you if you could do that, it's a very similar story. In fact, it's sort of a second exodus. You have Moses as God's leader. You have Joshua as God's leader. You have the Passover where in the 10th plague, as God would, would, would allow the, the people of Israel to come out of the land, they would, how did you, how, did you, uh, how, how was your firstborn son spared? You applied the, the blood of a lamb to the doorpost and the lintel of your house and the angel of death would pass over that house in a very similar way you have the story of Rahab who would hang the scarlet thread and when Israel would invade they would pass over her house in fact the people of Israel crossed the Jordan when we get to that part in the month of Passover you have the Red Sea being parted you have the Jordan River being parted you have 12 spies sent out You have two spies sent out. You have a call to follow God's law in the Mosaic covenant in Exodus chapter 24. Now you have a call to follow the ark when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. And do you know what that ark contained according to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 4? It contained manna, it contained Aaron's rod, and it contained the law that God had given to Moses. So there's a sense in which the people are once again called to follow the law. But what do all these events show us? They show us that God is gracious to his people. He could have said, look, you reject me. I reject you. Instead, we see his love and his grace. Grace is simply getting what we don't deserve. He's not going to leave them wandering in the wilderness for the rest of their lives. He gives them a land where they will be supplied with all that they need and more. And they don't even have to plant the seeds. The Canaanites have already done that for for them. It's going to be a place where they can worship the one true God, to live in relationship with Him. Their salvation is by grace through faith. And Joshua makes it very clear who is doing the work in verse number 5. Mike, you alluded to this earlier. Verse number five, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. No army, no man could do what was about to happen. God shows His great power for His people not because they deserve it but because He is gracious. And our salvation today comes exactly the same way. Paul echoes these words in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, familiar to many of you. You've learned this in Awana, kids. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Friend, God has been gracious to you even today. At times I hear people say, I just want what I deserve. No, you don't. What we deserve is God's right judgment for our sin. What we deserve is hell, eternal separation from God, and anything less than that is God's grace. His undeserved favor. And sometimes, though, we try to earn God's favor by being religious, by keeping all the rules, by doing charity, whatever the case might be, by refraining from certain sins, certain vices, But those things can't earn God's favor. No one will ever see eternal life because they kept all the rules. Eternal life, that is the heavenly promised land, comes by grace through faith. God graciously gives us a gift. Has anyone, have you ever, I'm sure most of all have been given a gift. A gift has been given to you and it's freely given. And it's freely received. If you have to do something to earn that gift, it's not a gift anymore. You've earned it. Have you received God's gift of grace today? And that means, to receive God's gift of grace means that you see yourself as a sinner before God in need of a Savior. You believe that God has provided a Savior in Jesus Christ and Jesus has died for, your, for the sins that you commit. You believe that Jesus has risen from the dead defeating sin and death and now he lives as king and gives you victory over sin and victory over death. This is the gift. Receive it today. If you have received it, can I just encourage you, rest in God's gracious gift We aren't saved by grace and growing spiritually by works. We're saved by faith through grace and we grow by faith through grace. God graciously forgives you every time you sin. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and He is just. He is right to forgive it and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 God's grace is sufficient for you in every situation that you're in. Christian, believe this reality. Isn't it so much better than the world telling us that we need to measure up to some standard, to some status, to some person? And that standard keeps moving so you can never quite get it right. For some, this is a weight that is too much to carry, and we turn to addictions and we fall into depression that can lead us down the darkest of roads. But Bible Christianity says this first, we can't ever measure up, which seems like kind of bad news. We can't ever measure up, especially to God's standards. But it, Bible Christianity also says that Jesus has measured up for us. That he lived a perfect life in our, our place and when we trust in him, his perfection is applied to our account by Grace. Through faith, no longer are we sinners before God, but we are saints, we are separate, we are made holy, which we'll talk about next week. No longer is our identity found in how we perform, but only in how Jesus has performed for us. This is the good news. You can't measure up, and you don't need to measure up because Jesus has measured up for you. Receive the grip. The gift of grace. Receive it today. Not that you're saved every day, that you're reborn over and over, but you receive each day of your spiritual life in relationship with God as a gift of grace, believing that Jesus is enough. You see, I talked about these two truths of God, God's sovereignty and His grace. And these two things are necessary attributes of our great God. But if our God is only sovereign and not gracious, then he just becomes a cold, calculated being that acts for his own benefit without any care for his creation. But if God is both sovereign and gracious, then he is a being that perfectly works out all things for his will and for the good of his people. Christian, God is right now at work to see His plan unfold in the world, which includes calling a people out of the wilderness and into the eternal land where they will live with Him and enjoy Him forever. Have you heard this call? I don't know your heart. The person next to you doesn't know your heart. Have you heard this call of God to believe and to trust in Him? Are you part of God's people? Are you following Jesus as Lord and Savior? If you haven't, let it be today that you listen to the words that Joshua gives to you to come here and listen to the word of the Lord your God, to hear it and to obey it so that you are not driven out of the land into eternal judgment. Christian, rest from your religious labors, rest from your need for control, for your selfish ambitions, and believe that your God is sovereign over every aspect of your life. You might be here discouraged because of some circumstance in your life. Believe that God is in control of that circumstance. Know that He cares for you, and at the same time that He is in control of it, He is acting graciously to you. He is for you. He is in your corner. At this very moment, Jesus stands as your advocate, your backer, your supporter, your encourager. Why? Bring it all the way back around to our our, our theme sentence in this chapter. The God of all the earth shows grace to His people and will faithfully lead them to the land he has promised.